This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, It's Just a Matter of Balance. You can't put a straight leg on a crooked man. And the author, Kevin S. Garrison. And Kevin joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Kevin. Hello. Hello, Steve. You have quite a story, inspiring story. That's what this book is about. And I want to read a... Just a short paragraph of what you've written to describe your book. It was 1969 when author Kevin Garrison was diagnosed with cancer. Not long after that, Garrison's doctor informed him his right foot needed to be amputated. In that moment, Garrison knew his life would be changed forever. And Just a Matter of Balance shares an eye-opening glimpse into the inspiring life of Garrison, who demonstrates to others that with genuine acceptance of our fate, we can finally begin to live the life we were meant to have. Well, you've been through it. You aren't just imagining uh, this book uh, written to inspire others, right? Uh, yes, Steve, absolutely. I mean, you've been around, you've been a prosthetist now for how long? Uh, since 1973 is when I, when I started working in this field for the first time. So take us back to 1969. How old were you? I was 16 years old. Oh, my goodness. 16. Teenager in high school. And it just, the news of having cancer, uh, what, well, how did you handle that? Well, when, when uh, I first found out about it, I, I did what I guess most teenagers would do. And then you, psychologically, the term would be called denial. You, you just kind of deny it push it back in your mind like, you know, what are they talking about? You know, this is nothing. They don't know for sure, um, and, I, and I'm sure it's a mistake. And you start uh, trying to find a way to cope with, with this really horrifying news. Now, you are a very active teenager? Yes, oh, very extremely active. So yeah. sports? Yes, I, I actually, well, being a, a small-framed like, like I, I was at the time, um, my, my senior year in high school, I didn't even weigh 100 pounds. So I was in the lowest weight class on the wrestling team, to give you an example. But being, you know, being a wrestler, you, you've got to be in pretty damn good physical condition. Oh, you do. Man. There's no doubt. One of the most demanding, demanding sports there Absolutely. is. Now, though, cancer, obviously, was like getting a two-by-four across the face. Uh, but then... The next information you got from your doctor, the the next announcement, tell us about that, and and how did you handle that? Well, I I actually uh, was alone in the doctor's office because I was going for a routine follow up appointment because they had removed a toe, and then later they had found that there were some cancer cells there, but you know nobody really knew for sure what what was going to happen, and then about a year later, as I was going for, for follow-up checkups at uh, MD Anderson, a, a big international uh, uh, cancer hospital in, in Houston, Texas, um, it, they have you come every three, every three to four months for follow-ups to do blood workups and such. And my mother had been going with me, and I had family there, and it was pretty costly, the, the airfare back and forth. And so uh, it all became so routine. I was sent alone for this particular visit, and I'm sitting in the doctor's office, and uh, uh, they look at my foot, and it's, it's like a research hospital, so there was many doctors were coming in and, and putting in their input and looking at my foot, and they all left, and then here I was alone sitting in this, this tiny little claustrophobic exam room when the original doctor came back in, he asked me how old I am. I tell him I'm 17. And then uh, with very little hesitation, he tells me, well, we feel the cancers come back, 
and we're going to have to amputate your foot to really uh, solve this problem. And uh, go ahead. We understand you're in high school. This was about around in April, and the doctor says, go ahead and uh, you'll finish high school, and you'll come back in about three months, which will not be a problem, and we'll do the amputation then. And we, we feel, you know, you definitely have a 95% chance of having to have that foot completely amputated. And, uh, and that was that, and then I was sent back home. <laughs> so, oh, it's just like, uh, well, you got to change the light bulb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, go home and change the light. Wow. Just kind of matter-of-factly, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, I, there's actually uh, laws against that now because you have to be 18 years old uh, to, to see a doctor without a parent or guardian. Uh, so I think that, you know, those yeah. situations are kind of what motivated that a little bit. So, as you put it, life it is what happens to us while we are busy pursuing all our best laid plans for the future. I'm sure at your age you had some plans, and all of a sudden, what did life do to you? I mean, what, was, what were you thinking? Well, actually, I, I wanted to clarify what you just said. That wasn't really said by me. That was said by, that was the foreword in the foreword, and that was written by uh, Mr. Uh, Bruce Mack. McClelland, who is president-elect of the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, which is the main educational part of our prosthetic profession here in the United States. And I'm very proud to say, you know, that he just brings a very positive professional presence to the book, and I'm, I'm just so proud of having that as in the book as the foreword. And, uh, but that's what he was referring to, is how uh, life can all of a sudden uh, turn upside down, you know, and, and, and it just happens. So then what do you do? You know, what do you do? How do you react? How do you... Well, you're 17, I, too. You're not, you know, 25, 30, or 40. Uh, you're 17, and all yeah, of that, a sudden... And that's a, you know, that's a pretty tough age, although, you know, any age, you know, sure. a permanent disability is horrendous, but at that age, there's a lot of psychological... Uh, things going on. You're you're searching for your identity. You're changing from boyhood to manhood, and you know you become really focused on you know women. You know it's like, yeah. my goodness, nobody's going to you know want me important. anymore. Yeah, who's going to want to go out with me? I'm just a a cripple. And that's that's where you know the body image comes sure. in, where you know we all have uh, our our image of our body, and and you know it, you know uh, people can, you know, look in the mirror and an overweight person can see a thin person in the mirror and a thin person can see an overweight person in the mirror and that's, that, that's where it's kind of unhealthy. But when all of a sudden we lose a part of our body, our body image is affected and then the fear of rejection becomes very strong and that's why it's very normal in these cases for people to want to be left alone because they're so fearful of rejection that they they can kind of head, off, head that off and do a, like a preemptive strike, so to speak, by, by put, putting themselves in isolation so they don't have to deal with that risk of rejection, which unfortunately is very unhealthy and uh, unnecessary, but it's a natural response, and, and it's, it's just terrible. And that's, that's what I did. I, I reclused, uh, became a recluse in my wonderful, peaceful bedroom at home, and I just was very happy to just, be by myself and then and then uh, the beauty of of my friends and family and just pushing themselves on me and nudging me along was was uh, just invaluable to to my true recovery actually so the most helpful person or persons to someone with a newly acquired disability friends and family friends true friends true friends yeah true friends True friends, and you find out who they are really are when uh, you know. God forbid a catastrophe. Because you falls. expect mom and dad and others to be there for you. I mean, that's a given. But it's the friends, right? The friends, and actually, and, and the peers, peers your, you know, your age group. The peers is, yeah. is is just wonderful, and I and I bring this out throughout the book because it's very often overlooked, and and uh, and even though the person that is suffering from the disability. Uh, forgets and overlooks the fact that, you know, they've got all these resources there all around them, and they should, they should sit back and allow them to help. And unfortunately, they don't. And so that's what I hoped in my book would bring out um, 
as uh, people in this situation might read this story, my story, that they could identify with where they're at in their recuperation process and then start to open up and loosen up a little bit and, and realize that, you know, these people are just, just want to help. So this adjusting to permanent loss, this is one of the themes that goes throughout your book. It's so critical to just face it head on. Yes, it is. And, but the reality is not everybody's able to do that immediately. And, and, and it's sad to see it, but I've seen, you know, really macho, tough guys that are, you know, husbands of large families, so to speak. And, and they are just, they just come through it all like, oh, this is nothing. You know, I'm, I'm fine. And it's so obvious that they're hanging on to so much anger. They're just being strong for their family and their children. And they, they just don't want anybody to see what's really going on inside, which they're entitled to be angry and upset and, and so sad about what's happened to them. And psychologically, it's actually necessary to allow this heat, you know, as part of the healing process to accept, you know, what's happened to you, get all the anger out, and then you can move on in your life and, and truly put it in your past and, and, and happily go, go through the rest of your life pursuing your goals and your dreams, which may change a little bit. They may have to adjust, but nevertheless, you know, you, you know, we're all entitled to have dreams and pursue them, and, and uh, I wanted to be sure and bring all this out in, in the story as well. So the anger, it, it's, it's like having a death in the family. You well, have to go exactly through that. Does. You have to go through that, that whole grieving, mourning, getting rid of the anger process and acceptance. Exactly. It's, it's, psychologically, it's just as devastating as, God forbid, losing a parent, a brother, or sister, or a close friend. Absolutely. When did you know that you wanted to become a prosthetist? Well, it, it, it's very interesting, but it's, it's actually ironic because here is this young, skinny, little, little uh, young man who just went through this horrendous you know, process of you know, losing a limb. And all the time, though, I... I had been very interested in pursuing a healthcare career. I was very interested in mechanics. I rebuilt a, a Corvette Stingray uh, with the help of one of my bosses. I was very mechanically minded, and I have uh, quite a bit of natural artistic ability as well. And then all of a sudden, they make me my first artificial limb, and um, I would look at it at night from all different angles and trying to understand how come it has a different shape on the inside, then the outside, and how did they know where to glue the artificial foot under me, you know, uh, you know on this prosthesis. And, and being a, a, a someone that questions everything, I have a very inquisitive mind, and I was just, just became overwhelmingly fascinated to the point that when I was ready to start college, I decided that I would get a part-time job in a local facility that made artificial limbs and check it out and see if I would like it or not. And and I found it very tough at the beginning because, uh, you know, it's kind of gruesome, you know, seeing people with amputated limbs. And, and especially for me, you know, at that age, I was 19 at the time, and I uh, wasn't used to seeing things like that as well as most people aren't. But uh, to my su surprise, I found that that went away very quickly, and I was able to focus my attention in a more professional way. And I really liked knowing that, wow, I can actually make a limb that's going to help make this person happy. And in my naive way, I thought that, and that was really my motivation because I'm a sensitive man myself, and, and seeing these people very sad sitting there, I thought, wow, I'm going to learn how to make limbs, and I'm going to make them so good that when I provide this artificial device to them, they're going to be happy and everything will be good and smooth sailing for them until I realized much later in my career that that didn't seem to be enough, that, that there were other issues going on and, um, and uh, that something more, I would need to do more if I would want to personally be able to help them more. And then I had the catharsis of, well, my story was, was so intense and unbelievable that, you know what, I'm going to wait. And when I'm older and I feel the time is right, I'm going to, I'm going to write my story down, but I'm going to write it down in a way that it's going to be very, very helpful to them 
and also all the other professionals that are involved in in uh, care for people like this that I saw you know there was a need for as well and uh, and and even more so which which I'll be happy to talk about later but this is this is how I uh, I pursued the career and, and it became a, a very natural perfect fit for me it's it's kind of ironic well you've owned and uh, you're operating continue to operate and own successful prosthetic care companies now for uh, 26 years there in Florida and you have also tell us about your website well I you know I, I created a website which is uh, garrisonsprosthetics.com um, to uh, to of course make make my services uh, uh, available and an understanding of my services available as the as the internet took off uh, you know I really wanted local people here to be able to find me and, and learn more about me and I I really went through a lot of time and effort to create this website and make it something very peaceful and extremely informative where people could learn about me and the services that I want to offer and it has my curriculum vitae and and uh, and uh, all all uh, and you have an interview there too you have an interview with you with you about about your i guess your life yes yeah well when when the when uh the, the book first came out, I thought I was going to be interviewed about the book, but they were mostly, <laughs> the interview is mostly about me, my, my personal experiences and, right. and how I dealt with it. And uh, that's on the website as well, yeah. Kevin, tell us how your book is different uh, with others with a similar topic. Well, Steve, I chose to write my story after having a more mature understanding in my 50s of what I went through as a teenager and then living as an amputee for more than 30 years. And this all gave me a profound insight to draw from. I could now begin to focus on what was truly relevant to emphasize in my story and what was not. And then working as a prosthetist providing prosthetic limbs for amputees for more than 30 years was invaluable as well. And the book is purposely presented in a lighthearted manner despite the intensity of the topic. Not only was it written to aid at the amputee and their families and friends and offer a deeper understanding of permanent disability in general, but I also wrote the book to help the medical professionals in their constant quest for tools to help drive ethical standards higher in the professional education process. The book also brings out the need for empathy and the true nature of ourselves that we are are not body and then mind, but that we are mind and body connected very strongly together. And I hope to encourage students that are looking for a career to possibly consider the great up-and-coming profession of prosthetics and also those already involved in the field to become more sensitive to the needs of their patients. I've also been told the book would be of great benefit in the life sciences curriculum and college study. It is felt that it could aid in educational retention or completion, and, uh, yes, making one's dreams come true with steadfast determination. The title of the book, It's Just a Matter of Balance. You Can't Put a Straight Leg on a Crooked Man, and the author is Kevin S. Garrison. Kevin, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book's available, of course, uh, through the Internet uh, in many, many ways through iUniverse, who helped me publish the book, and as well through Barnes & Noble, Noble, Amazon. And then also I'm offering the book at my website, which is garrisonsprosthetics.com, where I'm only offering the hard copy, and and I'm happy to sign it for anybody that orders it there. And believe it or not, I also have a lithographic copy of the artwork that's in the book, that really brings out my state of mind at the time when I was still struggling to let my anger go. And uh, if anybody wants to get a life-size uh, copy, uh, you know, it's available at my website as well. And most of the proceeds are being donated to different charities that offer help to people with permanent disabilities of all ages. Kevin, thank very much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve, for having me. It's been really a great honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. 
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vasley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Fierce Local, Memoirs of My Love Affair with Ireland. And the author is Harvey Gould, and Harvey joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Harvey. Steve, how are you doing? Good to be with you. Great to have you, because you're going to take us on this wonderful journey, this magical journey to Ireland, and all the reasons why you love the land so much, because you were introduced to it. A Jewish boy doesn't seem to fit. <laughs> that, that, that is true. That is a solid beginning. Absolutely yes, yes. correct. Well, let me read what you've written about your book, just in general. You say this, a pair of irrepressible yanks living in the irish countryside teaches us about irish history customs and social norms shares their humorous and moving experiences and learn universal lessons about priorities when the author is diagnosed with a terminal disease so we've kind of got one extreme to the other here love of life and then the challenge of life i guess You've got it, and the lessons that you learn from it, it's uh, a lesson I'd rather not have had to have learned, but you don't get a choice. It comes with the territory called life, right? I'm sorry? I said it comes with the territory called life. Indeed it does, and you've got to learn to accept it rather than hide in the cave and turn the lights out. Well, let's kind of dive into how you got so connected to Ireland. Well, it starts with the fact that my wife is um, Irish Catholic, and uh, so her ancestry comes from Ireland. Both of her grandparents had immigrated to the United States uh, probably in the early 1900s, and um, she had grown up with a love of Ireland. I knew nothing about Ireland or the Irish or Catholics, for that matter. And she's the one who really introduced me to it. Um, we were both horseback riders, and uh, her, I guess her strategy, if you will, to get me to go the, the first time was we went on a horseback riding trip. And there is no country in the world that is more glorious to be in if you're a horseback rider than Ireland. So that was the hook. And 20 years later, after we'd returned multiple times and spent extended periods there, not only was she hooked, but she had me, <laughs> she had me hooked as well. It, it's a land that is 
a wonder and a place to fall in love with, and indeed I did. Now, of course, uh, the book is filled with uh, recounts of writing episodes in Ireland, and and we want you to kind of paint some pictures for us about that. But it also, here you are uh, enjoying the wonderful, wonderful uh, countryside of Ireland, and was it there that you had some of your most uh, difficult times with this disease? Not really. Uh, there was one horrible time, which led to there's a there's a whole chapter um, in the book that that deals with that, and that chapter is titled "Harvey Becomes a Full-Blooded Irishman," and that was um, actually in 2006 when I essentially from the, the disease the I have a form of a rare blood cancer, and while there I crashed and needed. Um, multiple transfusions of blood, and afterwards actually ended up writing to the Irish Prime Minister and saying, hey, you know, I've now replaced all my blood with Irish blood. (laughs) Why don't you recognize me as an honorary Irishman? But the the truth is that uh, the the diagnosis was actually uh, some years earlier, and uh, this was while it was a a terrible series of... uh, times that we had to deal with while there, most of what I've dealt with with this disease has been back in the good old U.S. of A. Your background is Jewish, deeply immersed in the Jewish religion. That's correct. Uh, raised, uh, born and raised uh, in a kosher home. Family was from Chicago. We moved to a northern suburb and um, most of my young life was really spent within that setting. And at the same time, my wife uh, was born and raised uh, in Manhattan. And she was the one who really lived in a more eclectic culture because she was raised in a neighborhood where it was both Catholic and Jewish. So her dad, who was uh, a cop on the New York beat, would take his daughter, daughters, actually, to local candy shops where there were Holocaust survivors. And so she grew up um, knowing um, things about Jewish custom and uh, where I had absolutely no idea about Catholicism or the Irish. And that's why another chapter in the book, actually, the first one is called The Unlikely Couple, because we were and yet it's turned into a pretty magical love affair between the two of us. You say that Ireland is a metaphor for life. Now explain that. Well, um, one of the things, probably a primary thing, that I adore so much about the country, there are many things, but part of it is that it is small. It's a very small country, probably 4 million people more or less, And yet the country has a big life, has a big heart. It's a people who have been, had been repressed for probably some 800 years, primarily by by the British. And for those of you who are British and listening, forgive me, but it is what it is. And yet they managed throughout all those difficult times to be able to deal with the oppression, and yet turn it into a joke. So that one of the stories I tell in there, for example, is that it was the black and tan who were British troops, got their name from their outfits uh, back in the 1920s or so on, who were viewed as a pretty brutal force in putting down the Irish, you know, so I say, and it's true, if you go into any Irish pub today, you can order a black and tan, and what you'll get is a beer that's a mix of a stout and and a tan beer. So typical of the Irish, you know, you can't beat them militarily, make a beer out of them. And it's just typical of the Irish humor. They'd always turn, you know, these tragic times into, by a turn of phrase. And that's also part of what was, to me, the metaphor, um, 
when you're in Ireland, you always you you will talk to people about them talking the crack, C R A I C, not the kind you smoke. This is witty talk, and throughout the country, you'll find that. And that also is to me part of the metaphor in that. These are people who just have a magical way with language that makes it an absolute delight to be there. So you know people who have gone through hard times, who have come through hard times, still have a sense of humor, small country, big hearts. That's pretty much the metaphor for life. And you seem to connect with them so well because of what you were personally experiencing, your hard times. I think that's partly true. Part of it also is I, I was a trial lawyer um, before my disease pulled me out of being able to do that. Uh, it pulled me out of that because part of the disease is a form of a relentless exhaustion. But um, so I enjoy speaking. I enjoy repartee. And there's no place better than Ireland where you can experience the rapier wit of people who you're talking to. And, um, and there's no doubt the, the fact of my health challenge and being in a country where I understood that these were people who themselves had had extraordinarily difficult times over centuries and were able to come through it with wit and humor, and it was, in a way, sort of a helpful lesson for me. Um, I say in the book at one point that uh, some believe that with serious diseases come blessings, count me as one of the believers, and I feel that strongly. You can, you can take a wallop like this and decide to pull the covers up, turn the lights off, and just wait for death to take your hand, or you can say, you know what, I'm going to live every day to the fullest, I'm going to enjoy it, I'm going to truly take to heart what it means to smell a rose. And when I pass a rose, I don't just walk by it, I smell it. Now, part of that enjoyment of life has been these horseback riding experiences in Ireland. Kind of paint a picture for us. Uh, what would it be like to go on a horseback ride in the beautiful Irish countryside? Well, we did um, two different kinds of riding, really. Um, initially, we went on um, rides with groups of people uh, where you'd have the opportunity of really doing any kind of riding you want. I, I love to jump horses and have been in some um, jump competitions and so we went on these rides where you could go on cross-country courses, where you could go on what riders would just call a hack. You could go hilltopping, riding from hill to valley to hill. Um, and we went to places where you'd be in the saddle six hours a day, three hours at a time. Maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but... For anybody who's done it, you know that's, that's a lot of riding and very exhausting but exhilarating. But I also ended up going on probably the most challenging rides of my life. I went on two fox hunts while I was there, and uh, those were absolutely frightening, breathtaking, exhilarating, just extraordinary rides that went took you over terrain where you never knew you were go where you never knew you were heading but um, where you're jumping stone fences and jumping over gullies and uh, at a hand gallop where the hounds are ahead of you tearing ahead and you're chasing after them and your heart's just thumping <laughs> just saying keep me in the saddle just yes. keep me there yeah. and, Thank God I did stay in it and uh, <laughs> was quite pleased to be able to finish both of them with all limbs still intact. We've got a couple of minutes left. Tell us what it feels like uh, about life there in a real small village, like 1,200 persons, and, and you've gotten to know people where you're like uh, one of them. We, we, well, that's really the title. The the fierce A fierce local is a designation that those in Ireland will give to 
quote, outsiders, close quote, who they come to accept as one of their own. So they'll say to you, ah, Harvey, you're a fierce local. So it's really the ultimate, you know, the ultimate honor to be told that you belong there. But it's true. I mean, I grew up in Chicago. My wife grew up, as I said, in New York. So we're metropolitan folks. And after we had traveled all around Ireland, and the book takes you through multiple experiences, characters that we met all over the country, but ultimately we came to settle in this little village of Adair that you're correct is about a population of 1,200. And it is just, it was just, I think, a phenomenal experience for both my wife and myself to feel as comfortable as we did having both grown up in major cities in the United States, you get to know the people with an intimacy that, frankly, is just not possible in a major metropolitan area. And as long as you're willing to live the life as the villagers live it, rather than being haughty, rather than being in an A chapter, what I describe as, an ugly American, you know, that is expecting everything to be as you knew it from your hometown rather than going along with how things are there, you become accepted. And if you keep coming back, and we did, we came back year after year after year and would stay for extended times, and we literally got to know the baker, the butcher, the candlestick maker, and everybody in between, and accepted them at their level, put on no airs, and ultimately they accepted us. But the pace of life is wonderful. It slows down. Everything is reserved and yet absolutely thoroughly enjoyable. I could easily see us living in an area like that, if not that village itself, and enjoying it completely. So stretch yourself, uh, live out of your comfort zone, no matter what happens, be thankful, even, even when the big challenges come. Exactly. Um, the, the stretching for me was really com- comes in two packages. One is learning to live a life in a culture that is different than one to which I was accustomed and coming to accept that and love it. And the stretching also had to do with, and this is certainly a part of the book also, is the tale of coping with having a doctor tell you you've got three to five years to live. And that's now, thank God, 12 years ago. So we've been beating the odds and the doctors have been able to find, there is no cure, but they're able to find things to keep me going. And so the stretching really came in both ways, living in a culture of one to which I wasn't accustomed and living a life after having been handed, in essence, a death warrant by doctors and saying, I'm not going to allow that to overshadow my life. I'm going to love it. I'm going to love life. I'm going to... um, live every day to the fullest, and uh, God knows I love my wife. I don't want to leave her. She doesn't want me leaving yet, and uh, we're going to keep this going as long as we can. The title of the book, A Fierce Local, Memoirs of My Love Affair with Ireland, and the author is Harvey Gould. Harvey, tell us how to get your book. Well, probably a good way is to go to, the book has its own website, which is the title of the book, www.afiercelocal.com. And there, there's an overview, there's some excerpts, and there's also uh, a place to order it that'll take you directly to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Thank you, Harvey, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. 
Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book of Animals and Angels, and the author is Marguerite Antonio, and Marguerite joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marguerite. Hello there. Well, we're going to talk about angels, their presence in our lives. Uh, They can come in different forms. Uh, You have some strong feelings about that. Let me read what you've written about your book of Animals and Angels. You say this. It's a compilation of six short stories, all dealing with a life crisis that was brought to a positive conclusion for the main characters as a result of loving interaction with angels and or animals. That's right. Well, tell us about yourself, Marguerite, and your the disciplines you practice and uh, why you're so uh, interested in angels and interacting with angels and how you uh, see them in your life? Well, I'm a grandmother and a mother and a Reiki master teacher. I also have certification in reflexology and uh, uh, several other holistic disciplines. I've spent a lot of my time uh, researching the metaphysical or the spiritual part of life because I truly believe that uh, we are a component of not just body, mind, and matter, but spirit as well. In my life and in the life of my family, we've had several different little incidences where we felt that we've had angelic presence assisting us at different times of our lives. And so I decided to try and record that. So you say you use these experiences along that you have, that have happened along the way in your family and to you as inspiration to write these fictitious short stories. That's correct. And they aren't really true stories, but they're based on a truth. Okay. <laughs> so as to say. Okay, and we have six of them in this book, six short stories. Now, uh, you also say that. Animals have long served humankind, and we are not often aware of how very healing their presence can be. And so there's this this connection with not only angels, which we may conjure up in our mind, we may have our own view of that, uh, an actual uh, angelic visit of some person, or but you also see animals as kind of angelic. Yes, definitely. Well... In several different incidences, I've observed animals. I, I, I like nature. And in one incident, uh, particularly when I was doing an interview, or not an interview, but a, a, I was doing a, an article on animals, and I followed along with this therapy dog in 
it, it was just amazing. I found it so amazing how this animal, this big poodle, you know, standard size poodle, went around in the hospital and hospice and how his interaction just brightened up the room. And according to what I had read, medical science has agreed that petting an animal or having an animal uh, around you, if you're comfortable with an animal, can actually lower blood pressure and, and relax you. And in The Therapist is a, dog, is a Dog, the book, the story of Therapist is a Dog, um, it just showed over and over again how wonderfully this animal responded to people and how people responded to him relaxing them, making them feel better, putting smiles on their faces. It was really a wonderful experience. So this story, the therapist is a dog, came from this, uh, uh, you witnessing this in this uh, nursing setting? Mm-hmm, yes. actually followed him along in the hospital while he went uh, in the hospice, in the hospice ward, as well as in the acute care ward. He was really... Quite, it really thrilled my heart <laughs> to see the way this animal worked. And obviously it was thrilling the hearts of those who this animal was interacting with. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, they, they just loved him. They smiled and they grinned and it was very therapeutic. And the nurses, the nurses relaxed and would play with him, you know. And as, if you know hospitals, they can be pretty tense and you know, traumatic, but the nurses relaxed and played with him too. So in your story, the therapist is a dog. Now, is it told from the, the, uh, from your observation point of view or? Yeah. No, it was from my observation point of view. Um, I sort of made a little story of the different things, the little vignettes that I obviously, you know, witnessed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's what that's about. So actually, I, in the back of the book, I give credit to the, uh, the to the dog and his uh, his master. His master, of course, has to be very. I mean, they're, they're very well trained. These dogs, they don't just come in there. They're very trained before they can do this kind of thing. So they're hand selected. I mean, they're very carefully okay. selected. Oh yeah. Must go through uh, some quite some intense training. Yes, and so does the handler. They're not just you know they they don't they're not just accepted. Uh, without uh, quite a bit of um, study. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Another one of your short stories is titled The Angel and the Train. Now, tell us about that. Tell, give us a little uh, synopsis of the characters and uh, of the plot. Well, uh, this one is something that was handed down my family. Um, and... I embellished it a bit, but basically stayed with the, the theme of it. And it's, it takes place um, uh, around the time of the end of the Second World War. And this mother and her children are walking along the track, uh, going home from work, or mother and grandmother and the two children. And um, they're, uh, oh, they're, uh, as they're walking along the track, a, a train overtakes them. And the four-year-old rushes ahead and the others jump off the track and of course they're they're horrified and uh, it it turns out that uh, she is saved she doesn't get run over by the big electric train that's chasing her and it's it's a beautiful story too it's it's very poignant and uh, I I enjoyed it and I wrote it uh, the way my grandmother used to tell it because my grandmother was the one who told us the story so so in this in, in this case, the angel did the grandmother mention who the angel was? No, the little girl later uh, uh, said when her daddy asked her what you know who who was this man that saved you, and she basically said it was an angel. <laughs> hmm. the, the four-year-old did. Well, so the story you know comes to that point. I think all of us want to believe in angels, and there are many who have had these kinds of experiences that uh, don't wonder about it. They know it for sure. Yes. Yes, and, and quite, a, you know, I've, uh, I haven't written all of my little stories yet, 
But a lot of people have shared, too, you know, different aspects of where they have noticed what they feel angelic presence in their lives. And it's very, uh, once you start listening to the stories, you become more and more of a believer. You can't just, you know, um, if, uh, say, for example, the dog saved the little boy from drowning. Well, you know, was that animal instinct or not, you know? Was there some kind of presence that issued the animal into the water to help and save the little boy? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you, you start seeing, oh, dear, you know, there are just too many coincidences that aren't really coincidences, so you start thinking about it a little more. You have to open your mind to it. I I certainly have come across people who say, oh, it's just a coincidence. It could right. happen that way. Yeah. Fine. Coincidence. Fine. The unbeliever would always say that. Yep. Well, you, you collect these after a while, and you you know the coincidences just become a little bit too. There are too many of them <laughs> that aren't coincidences anymore. You say these angelic interludes leave us feeling protected, loved, more cognizant of life around us, and sometimes wiser than before. Uh, that's sometimes wiser. Uh, can you give us uh, an example of that, or explain that? <laughs> Well, <laughs> I guess that it's all perspective, but any time that I've, you know, experienced this kind of interaction myself or listened to others' experiences, it, it always leaves the person, I would say, a little wiser. You, you kind of look at life a little differently after something like this happens. You know, whether it's an accident that that you, that should have happened and didn't, or you know, the little girl being saved by the tra- from the train, it, it, it does make you kind of, your perspective has to change a little after these kind of things happen, and I feel that it makes you a little wiser that way. The titles of the other short stories, Lucky Dog, Angel Hugs, Mama Ducky, and Angel at the Scene. So there are six of them in all. Marguerite Antonio is the author and the title of the book of Animals and Angels. Marguerite, tell us how to get your book. It's available on Amazon as a um, ebook as well as a hard copy, and it's available through iUniverse Bookstore and uh, at Barnes and Noble and Chapters. I have a website as well. The website is www.ofanimalsandangels.com. Dot com, and I have some available to me. Uh, or you can email me at dolphinsrainbow, that's dolphinsrainbow at shaw.ca, and I have them available as well. Marguerite, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.